Welcome to The Marketer's Journey, a podcast that delivers real conversations and fresh perspectives from senior marketing executives who share the journey they've taken and the buyer journey they create. And now here's your host, Randy Frisch. Hey, marketers. Hey, business leaders. This is Randy Frisch, and this is the Marketer's Journey podcast. Today, I've got a great guest, Patrick Moorhead. I never met Patrick before, but I'd heard great things, and he did not disappoint. So in this episode, here's what you're going to hear about. Now, Patrick's path is pretty interesting. He started at some pretty big agencies, names he's probably familiar with, companies like FCB, companies like Razorfish, where he had really high-level strategic roles overseeing accounts. And he wanted to get more into that CMO track, be, be involved in something he's passionate about. And what I respect a ton from him is a line you'll hear today is don't let your ego get in the way. He did not. He jumped into an AE role at a pretty good company that I'll let you hear about. And that took him on a path to be CMO at a couple of companies now in the B2B SaaS space. Now in the second half, we actually dig into a little bit of what his company does because I found it really interesting. We didn't talk about his company's solution, but more so the debate of pricing. Now, when do you introduce pricing into the buyer journey? And this is one that I struggle with because I'm not going to suggest that we do it right here at Uberflip, but we wait a little bit later. We wait to find out where someone's going to use our solution, what type of services they're going to need from us to get up to speed. And as a result, it's more of a strategic conversation to figure out price. Now, sometimes myself, when I'm going through that buyer journey, I want to know about price right out of the gate. But Patrick talks about the benefits of telling someone up front, benefits and risks of telling someone a little bit later as well in that buyer journey. No necessarily right answers, but some great debate that we stoke up for sure. Without further ado, here we go. Patrick Moorhead, CMO of PriceFX. Hey, Patrick, thanks so much for making time to talk about your journey. I'm really excited to understand how you became the CMO of PriceFX also curious why you decided to put the brackets around the X, but we'll get to that part. It's a cool brand, cool brand name. I like the way it looks. I'm just trying to always figure that out, you know, from a typing perspective. But let's first talk about what is what does it mean to you to be the CMO of that company? How did that come to be? Thanks, Randy. I'm excited to be on the show as well. Thanks for having me. The chief marketing officer role at PriceFX is a highly diverse and fast-paced uh, position. And what it really means is that I'm sort of the steward of the brand, the communication strategy, the marketing and advertising, demand generation, uh, partner enablement tools, sales enablement tools. And I think it's a representative of sort of the evolution of the marketing leadership role in the world today, where in the past, I think marketing leadership primarily dealt in awareness and brands, storytelling. But increasingly, as technology plays a bigger role in the discipline of marketing, there is an increased need for CMOs to be data-driven, to have familiarity with the tools and technology automation that's available. And because of those tools, I think marketing organizations are increasingly accountable to revenue. They're increasingly accountable to ROIing the investment that companies make in marketing. And it's those kind of behaviors that add the sort of challenging layer to the job on top of what I consider to be the really fun part of the job, which is how do you create a, um, a brand story that 
in, in its best form connects the culture of the company that you work in with the products that culture produces and the results that customers can expect to get when they purchase those products into a seamless uh, believable story that actually has integrity and that has some visceral emotional connection to all of those stakeholders. That's great. So it is a really challenging role. I think more than half of the role is about team management these days for me at least um, because there is no world where a marketing leader can do all the things that are required of a marketing organization, uh, particularly in a software company like PriceFX. So it's really focused on how do I recruit and empower high caliber people and then enable them and get out of their way essentially to go and execute for the better of the, of the total organization. So Patrick, you just lined up like three podcasts for us to do together. One on you know, the, the value of brand, you know, another one on you know, becoming a more ROI-minded CMO in this day and age. And, but maybe we, can, maybe we can kind of go through your career here and zero in on the last part, which is how do you become that leader that unites people? Because as, as you're hitting on there, you need marketers to kind of do all of that, but you're also going to have some specialists within. And I'm curious, I mean, your, your career, I'll give people some highlights here uh, that they, you know, they may be looking for on LinkedIn themselves. You know, you spent a lot of time at, you know, on the agency side, companies like Razorfish and FCB, like big, big brand shops that really helped with a lot of that messaging and brand story, I imagine. And that ROI piece, I'm sure, was always there when it came time to pitching that next deal uh, or that you know, next project in brief. But maybe you can talk a little bit about where did you maybe become the leader you are along the way? Like, was there a defining moment in your career? Yeah, there was. I think like a lot of things that happen in good career stories, I got a lucky break. But luck is the collision of hard work and opportunity. And my lucky break was a result of cultivating a mentor relationship consciously with a gentleman that I met fortunately early on in my advertising career. And I recognized him as both kind of having what I wanted from a success and maturity point of view, but also there was a connection on a personal level around we were the same type of guy. Plain spoken, kind of Midwestern, you know, no nonsense kind of kind of guy. And I made the choice. I remember making the choice when I met him to say, I want to be like him. And if I want to be like him, I got I have to get him to teach me how to do that. And so I approached him and formally kind of said, Hey, would you be my mentor? And I felt really awkward doing this. <laughs> yeah, I, imagine. I think he was really awkward about it too. Cause it was kind of <laughs> like I was asking him on a date and we were both married and it was, so, you know, um, <laughs> um, but he, which company was this at? Uh, this was while I was at Razorfish at Razorfish, and I, okay. at Razorfish. I, and one of the functions that I did actually happened to be around event marketing, which is handy because again, in my current role where there's such a diversity of marketing activation, we make big investments in event marketing at price effects. And I learned how to do that from the ground up at, at the agency side. And he was represented a company that he owned at one of our events and, and we connected and, and I leveraged that mentor relationship throughout my career at different moments, whether it was 
I'm struggling with this management decision or I'm struggling with this relationship or I think it's time to make a change. And I used him as an advisor and sounding board through all those moments. And, and then a uh, number of years ago, he came into a position where he had invested in a company uh, as a board member and had taken over the company as the CEO. Okay. And, and at that moment, we had dinner together, as we often did when we were in the same city. And it became obvious to both of us that there was an opportunity for us to finally work together directly on that project. And he gave me my break. And that was my first role as CMO at Label Insight. So the, and that transition, that was probably the moment that got me to this job where I am today. That, that break that he gave me as a result of that relationship and that moment in time was also the first time where I really got to wear all of the different hats that I had worn independently over the previous path of my career all at once. So I had spent time in the agency side. I'd done brand strategy. Uh, I had done marketing planning. I had done digital operations. I had done international work. Uh, I had had some P&L responsibility here and there. And I had also made a conversion then to leave the agency world and move into the product technology world. And that's where I spent time at both Catalina and Twitter uh, where I got experience in sales, where I got close to sort of the data marketplace and the ecosystem around selling technology. And along the way, doing event marketing, touching public relations and community relations, touching analyst relations. Gotcha. And so jumping into that role next to my mentor at Label Insight was the moment where I got to say, okay, I've done that event marketing thing before. Here's how I can do it here. Here's how maybe public relations could fit in. Here's how advertising could work. Oh, by the way, we should have a brand strategy for this and on and on and on. And that, that experience that he gave me was sort of foundational to then getting into what I think is sort of a, an evolved version of that role for, for price effects. So the scale is bigger, the functionality is sort of still the same. So I want to come back to Twitter and the jump to Label Insight, because I find that really yeah. interesting. But, but I want to close off that, that last part with, uh, by the way, who was who the mentor? What was the, the, this person's name? Uh, his name is Paul Shout. Okay, there you go. Uh, shout out for Paul Shout there. Paul Shout. Uh, and I, I guess, how do you, how many marketers on your team today, Patrick? I run a global team of 14 marketing professionals today. So how do you take the experience that you have that you call a combination lucky break, but essential in having that mentor? And how do you try and find mentors for your 14 marketers or encourage them to, as you put it, have that awkward conversation? Because for some people, and I've had people on my team, I had someone who came to me and said, I need a mentor. I need you to help me find a mentor. And then I've got other people on my marketing team in the past who have just kind of like, you know, they want one, but maybe they're not comfortable to pursue that. That is a great question. The short answer is I am their mentor. So I, I take it very seriously in a leadership role that part of being that leader is both modeling and then helping to learn, right? So not necessarily, so for example, my dynamic in my team is I want all the problems to come my way from anywhere in my organization. But my team knows that while they bring me all their problems, they're not going to walk out with any answers from me, by and large. 
my, I view my role for them as sort of helping them dissect, analyze, right-size the problem, and then helping them find the way that they're going to solve it. I like and that. And that's about building that trust and building that empowerment within the team with the idea of never being the person who has to touch it to get it done. You know, so a KPI for me that I set for myself is sort of how, to what extent is my team feeling really comfortable coming to me with problems and then taking those same problems and going and solving them themselves. And what happens is over time, I think you build the confidence in the team that they can skip the part where they bring the problem to me. And instead, I get the readout of, I had this problem, here's what I did with it, and here's what happened. And nine times out of 10, my response is, that's awesome. Right. You're right? really teaching them how to navigate a challenge as opposed to how to solve every yeah. challenge. Because as, as you said, you're going to have certain expertise, but not all expertise. I, I like yeah. that a lot. I like that a lot. I want to come back to that, that jump that I talked about, the, the jump to Twitter. And you know, those who don't have your resume in front of you, although they could pull up LinkedIn to find this, they would see that you know at, at a number of the amazing brands we talked about, like Razorfish and FCB and others, you had roles like national director, VP, senior VP. And then you look on, on your resume and yes, it's senior, but it's an account executive, which I think, I, I mean, I respect at, at such a high level that you can't imagine because I think too often, you know, people at those on that agency side expect they can just make that quick jump over to the tech side and understand SaaS and everything that goes with that. What was your mindset around though, making the job, not, I mean, not to take anything away from getting a job as a senior AE at Twitter probably wasn't easy, but to make that jump for and getting you to where you are today. That's a great question. Uh, a lot of it, the, that jump, it's funny that you notice that because um, some people do and some people don't. There was a key learning in there for me personally about my uh, pursuing my passion and developing myself professionally versus what I felt my ego needed or what the world needed to believe about me from a title point of view. And the way the job at Twitter came about was uh, I had been using a spam filter on my email and I was filtering out all notifications from twitter.com. And every once in a while, I would go into that folder and sort of look around and see like what kind of junk I was getting. And on one of those folder visits, I found an email from a twitter.com email address, but it was a person, not an automated notification. <laughs> and it turns out that that was a, a HR recruiting person from Twitter who had contacted me specifically based on some reference that they had heard about from some work that I had done previously at Catalina. And I was weeks late in receiving the message and I contacted them back and didn't have any high hopes. And then uh, they immediately got back to me and very quickly I was in interviewing and the role that they had highlighted for me was sort of unique and they specifically were seeking me for it uh, because of my experience at Catalina and on the agency side, and it was around, it was managing the Walmart business for Twitter was what the job was. Um, and so it was CPG and it was retail and I had a lot of experience for that. And it was the first time they were hiring an, a, a single uh, customer AE. Most AEs handled two or three accounts at once. Um, so it was, it was a very unique situation. And I was feeling very lucky to be selected for that. 
Um, but what it really did was it caused me to look at the difference between what my title was and what the work was. I like that. And, and in that case, in particular, I'm really glad that I didn't let my ego get in the way of pursuing the opportunity. Because to your point, I think you would look at it and say, like, why would you take a huge step back from, you know, big title jobs? I, I, I could have fallen into that trap. But the experience that I gained out of setting that aside and being a part of a team inside Twitter and working on that customer, Walmart, and the work that we did between Walmart and Twitter over the year and a half or two years or whatever I was there, um, fundamentally changed the way that I understood how technology got sold, how products got built and launched, how data played a role in the ad tech and uh, and e-commerce world, and being inside a scaled organization like that just has proven to be so invaluable to me, both for the lessons, positive and negative, that I saw around, you know, kind of what happened there. And when I think about it in that context, I think, God, I could have missed out on all of that incredible experience just because it didn't have the title that I felt I Absolutely. had earned over, you know, whatever years prior. Well, I, lo I love that line that you said in the middle there, which is don't let don't let the ego get in the way. And, you know, there you go. Now, now you're a CMO. So that, let's let's take a pause here, Patrick. I, I want to dig a little into the way you think, which we, we've gotten a great taste of already. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about the buyer journey that you see with your customers today, right after a short break here on the marketer's journey. Want to create high converting experiences for your demand strategies that accelerate pipeline and drive revenue? Look no further than our presenting sponsor, Uberflip. Named a leader in content experience by G2 and a leader in content activation by Forrester, Uberflip will help you accelerate every buyer journey by creating bingeable experiences that will allow your prospects to consume more content faster. Companies like Trimble, Wiley, and Stantec are using Uberflip to power their go-to-market strategies and we created one just for you head to uberflip.com journey to see how uberflip can help you leverage the power of personalized content experiences to drive demand all right patrick so in the first half of this podcast you took us on a great journey of your career you gave us so many different tangents we could have jumped on I'm going to go on a complete different one, maybe one that you're comfortable with, though, because it ties to pricing, which is obviously near and dear to what you're doing right now at PriceFX. We're not going to talk about PriceFX too much, but we're going to talk more about where does pricing fall into the buyer journey? So with that cue, where would you say is the right time to introduce pricing? The right time to introduce pricing in the buyer journey is the exact time when it will help you close the sale. Okay. So let me ask this because I, I do this very often. I get a lot of our inbound emails just for more of an audit purpose as CMO. I'm not responding to them, but I'm, I'm kind of curious what people are asking for if they email like info ad or contact ad. And when they, when they do so often, they start with, I'm really intrigued what you do. I also would love to know where the pricing starts. And we do not, you know, we are a very complex buying cycle with different use cases. So we can't price in a, in a modular way or at least that's what we believe. Um, how would you suggest a sales rep answers that email? I don't know your business, <laughs> but I think at a certain level, 
all businesses should strive to be able to answer the question enough that they don't compromise their profitability and at the same time facilitate the on the procedural process of selling and buying right so okay. so there isn't a right way to do this and i think we struggle believe it or not as a pricing focused company we too struggle with pricing our own stuff amazingly right right? because pricing is hard it's all right my company is a content company and we struggle with content sometimes (laughs) everyone struggles with pricing that's why we invented a supercomputer level software price effects to try and help but even then the pricing is hard because it it plays discrete roles in different life cycles in different product genres in different vertical markets it's more or less important and in packaged goods, you know, fast moving goods, price is a foreground consideration, right? Maybe even the primary purchase driver. In software, it could be as much as an afterthought, depending on the level of value, the level of scale, the level of impact that a, that a particular solution might provide. If you think about a company like Salesforce, if you're running a scaled enterprise where you're trying to manage more than one salesperson, you probably are already walking into the conversation thinking, I know I have to buy this. I just need to be able to see what I can afford to get, which is a very different pricing conversation than maybe an optional software like a content management system where you could say, I don't really need it. If I can afford it, it's nice to have. Pricing would play more of a, a, a role there. And the other thing I think is, is really when you look at your buying journey, you got to kind of understand not only your own pricing, but the context of the conversation you have with the customer. In our situation, you know, we, we are very efficient when it comes to our competitors in terms of cost. And while that is an advantage, if you don't play it carefully, meaning play the efficiency of the cost after selling the value of the solution, if you lead with efficiency of cost, you become the bargain basement option. Absolutely. And there's a psychology around that too of, right, oh, well, it can't be good if it's, that, if it's only that much. Absolutely. Right? So let, let me, let me because you're, you're teeing up another question for me that'll keep this combo going. And that's, you know, a lot of what you're talking about here is when do we introduce this to the buyer journey, into the buying journey? How do we position it? And, and I'm not suggesting salespeople are not masters at positioning pricing. They are. But I, I don't know if you're seeing this often with the customers you work with. I know we, we definitely have marketing very involved in thinking through pricing and thinking through how to message pricing, how to introduce pricing, where it gets brought perhaps into some of the collateral that we may have. So where, where should the pricing conversation live? Is, is this the ownership of the CMO or is this the ownership of the VP of sales? Yeah, I think the answer to that has evolved. Uh, certainly even in the last five years. And I would say that pricing is now firmly in the domain of marketing in a way that I don't think historically it has been. And the reason is that particularly with software products, but more generally, I think with the behavioral aspect of consumers where they want to be able to configure and buy things relatively frictionless on their phone, 
with low to no touch from another human being, if at all possible. The way that that has to happen, price and value have to be delivered simultaneously as one compact message. Right. And pricing driven out of finance will only account for the dollars and cents aspect of the business. And it doesn't account for the emotional aspect of the purchase. And it doesn't account for sort of the value equation of the purchase. And the trick, I think, and it's art, not science, of pricing in the buyer journey is sort of how closely can you match the value to the cost to the emotional payoff of the transaction. And that's a story, right? That is the, the assignment there is how do you tell a story that weaves those three plot points together? And guess where storytelling lives in organizations? It lives that's in marketing. True. So it's not surprising like that. that marketing is increasingly sort of having fingerprints on pricing and product, you know, where product organizations developed products and, and finance priced them and then marketing put photos on top of them and to sell them. That has evolved fundamentally where price, product, consumer experience and brand experience now are sort of one in the same thing for some products. And that has to be managed by people that understand not so much the financial aspects or the product aspects, but the storytelling aspects that create the varnish. Well, I, I love the way you outline that. And it makes me think myself, I actually, in the last couple of years, I bought two cars, one, one for my wife, one for me, one of them was a Tesla, right? And, and a huge, and judgment as you may, everyone, but you know, uh, huge difference in the two buying experiences and the perception of value and the experience going through price during that buyer journey. In both situations, I more or less knew what I want coming in. But Tesla, I, I felt, did an amazing job, first of all, making it very easy to present that pricing. You bought the car essentially online. They explain the value. They tell a story for every feature you may be adding on. And even more recently, uh, you know, the Tesla my wife j drives, but you know, when, when they have an upgrade that you can pay for, it's done in the app, right? It, they don't need that sales app. They figured out how to tell a story around that. That's not just necessarily coming through. Here's your price. It's all the lead up and the messaging that comes in to that feature. And now it's time that we price it. So I think there's a lot, a lot of interesting aspects as you hit on there, Patrick, around, you know, what is the product? Is this a marketing message delivered? Is this a get you over the line? And, you know, again, we, we probably need six more podcasts to get through this, but you know, you've definitely, you've definitely stoked a heavy, heavy debate for a lot of our listeners. We're going to take another break here, but if you've enjoyed getting to know Patrick, you'll like to know how he finds time to balance all these career moves that he's made that have, you know, taken him to CMO level, but also some time to, to unwind right back here on the marketer's journey with Patrick. All right, Patrick, we've unpacked your career, your buyer journey, now that personal journey, that, that time off, the part that keeps you alive and you know, getting through it all. How do you make time as a CMO for time off? It's a great question. I have kind of a controversial answer for this, Randy. So I, one of the things that I learned at Twitter from guys like Jack Dorsey was the idea that work-life balance was a myth that if you did something you were passionate about 
and that you couldn't live without doing, that there wasn't a need to make a distinction. And, and I realize that that's dangerous. However, I also find a lot of freedom in that because it, it frees me from the idea that while I'm at work, I'm somehow not serving the needs of my family. And it frees me from the idea that while I'm serving the needs of my family, I'm not also engaged in my career. That's a great way to put it. So I've been lucky in my career that I don't feel like I've really worked terribly hard because I've always been really engaged from the head and the heart in what I'm doing. And I feel that same way about my family. I have two young boys and a beautiful wife. We're going to celebrate 10 years married this coming week, actually. Congratulations. Thank you. And uh, so we find little moments. Uh, she's a small business owner, entrepreneur. So she's super busy. I'm super busy. The kids are crazy. And it is very rare that we can say, okay, now we're not working and we're going to go take a vacation to the beach or whatever. Finding, finding the idea that quality over quantity matters for our kids and our family that dedicating a night to playing games in front of the fireplace while it's snowing in Chicago is worth its weight in gold for two hours versus what we, what we might not even get uh, on a four day adventure that includes planes, trains, and automobiles. So I think the balance is about internal balance. It's about working with passion and dedicating yourself to things with passion. And then it doesn't feel like work. It all feels like, what else would I be doing? That's great. I, li- I like that. And, and I think a, a big part of that is, is obviously finding the time. One of the things that I, I personally find that I do or try to do is, is set priorities, right? Like it's very easy when you love what you do on each side to overcommit. So you have to find, almost look at your calendar as that is and make sure you etch in those times for each because then you don't get carried away with the other one that you may be passionate about. Right. If, if you've made a commitment on both sides and I'm a commitment type of guy, once I make a commitment, I see it through. It, it forces us to make time, as you said, for that, that game night in front of the fire, you know, because that's in the calendar and that just can't be moved. So I really like the way you look at that, Patrick. I, in fact, I like the way you unpack a lot of ideas today. You know, one line that's going to stick with me from you is don't let your ego get in the way. I, th- I think that's a, a beautiful way to put it for everyone who's enjoyed hearing Patrick's background and want to hear more. Patrick, where could they learn more about you? Also, feel free, where, where can they learn more about PriceFX? Uh, well, PriceFX is at PriceFX, the letters FX.com. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter. It's at Shy, C-H-I for Chicago Media Guy, all one word. Awesome. And uh, the views are my own on that channel. And I talk <laughs> about marketing and I talk about a lot of other stuff on there as well. And I welcome all followers. All right. There you go. No surprise you you dropped Twitter after the stint there. So thanks so much. If people have enjoyed listening to Patrick, check out some of the other episodes we've had with amazing marketing leaders, just like Patrick. Everyone's story is a little different in terms of how they got to where they are today, how they're steering the ship. This has been The Marketer's Journey with Patrick Moorhead. Thanks so much for tuning in. You've been listening to the Marketer's Journey podcast. Big thanks to our sponsors at Uberflip, who help you fuel demand generation with content for an accelerated buyer journey. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify at uberflip.com slash podcast or anywhere you listen to podcasts. 